Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Did you go to the library as a kid? I was 100% a bookworm. I did that thing where you borrow the maximum amount of books possible, which at the time at the library I was at was 10 books. So I used to borrow 10 books every month, I think, and then try and get through it. Are they still under your bed? No. (laughs) You took them back. I took them back. I was very responsible. I was responsible with my library card. Have you been back to that library um, in the past couple of years? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. Because I got right. an e-reader. Okay, true. So and books are kind of cheap. Today we're looking at the transition from print books to e-books and how that might work in the library space. But that's also not the only challenge facing libraries today. Also on the show, phytoremediation. Hey, so imagine you've got an industrial building that once was. It's since been knocked down. Or a mine. And how do you clear up that land? How do you make that land to thrive again, the soil? Throw some plants on it, apparently, and the plants suck up all the crap in the ground. You'll be finding out more about phytoremediation a little later on. But first... They have been used to a particular method, which is to poison and shoot and trap dingoes, and they have been doing this for decades and to suddenly say, um, I'm putting the gun down, can be very difficult for people. It can feel like you're just, so I'm just what, just going to let them kill my livestock? I'm not going to do anything? What if I even see them um, attacking my livestock? What am I going to do? <laughs> Was there a time or a farmer that you were speaking to who wanted to engage in more predator-friendly practices, but they were either reluctant to or were worried that they weren't able to do that? Yes. Funny, and two cases come to my mind now that you're asking it. This is Ariane Wallach. Over the past couple of years, Ariane has spent a lot of time on farms. She's been working with farmers, but not milking the cows or grazing the fields, she was trying to change their attitudes towards dingoes and make their farms predator-friendly. In both cases, the owner and the person in charge inherited the management of this large station, but the parents were still on the farm and still had some final say. In two cases, the young couple now taking over the the management of the station said, yes, this actually makes a lot of sense to us. This is very modern. This um, is very logical. And then within a few days, they say, oh, well, I spoke to my dad, (laughs) and dad doesn't allow it. Predator-friendly farming ultimately aims to protect livestock while not killing native predators like dingoes. Guardian dogs... Keeping livestock in inaccessible areas when they're younger and employing range riders to watch over herds are just some of the non-lethal alternatives of predator-friendly farming. But as Ariane says, these are all things that cost time and money. There are challenges for farmers in adopting and transitioning to predator-friendly practices. For example, there's virtually no support for them. 
all of the resources, government resources and industry resources that go into um, reducing predation focus on killing dingoes. Um, there's very little support for transitioning to non-lethal options. There are also social problems. So farmers that choose not to kill dingoes can be socially ostracized. And when you're living on a place like we were living at, where our nearest neighbor is between 50 and 100 kilometers away, and these neighbors are the people that you rely on to rescue you if you're stuck out somewhere for, for hours, it can be very difficult for farmers to just tell their neighbors, well, I'm going to be the one farmer that's not going to kill dingoes. But what we're finding is that the best non-lethal method um, to protecting cattle from, from dingo predation is to stop killing dingoes. And why would that even be uh, a sensible method? And that is because dingoes are social animals. They form families, and these families hold territories. And when a cattle station has socially stable dingo packs or dingo families that each family is holding their own territories. These territories are very large. They can be like 100 square kilometers. Those dingoes are keeping other dingoes away, and their behavior is predictable. Their predation rate goes down. It's when they're poison baited and shot and trapped. That's when their social structure breaks down. You have um, very young dingoes growing up without their families. Their ability to hunt properly is going to be diminished. One of the most dangerous places for dingoes in Australia is inside national parks rather than just inside sheep farms. Why is that? Why is it more dangerous for them in those parks? Currently, conservation in Australia relies heavily on 1080 poison baiting or poison baiting with other toxins. And the reason why um, national parks are poison baited, it will say on the sign that it's targeting foxes. But there's no, but there's no difference between a poison bait for a fox and a poison bait for a dingo. I've always wondered that because it's how could other animals not also go after those baits? Right. And, and foxes and dingoes are particularly um, susceptible to poisoning by 1080. That is the drug of choice for killing both dingoes and foxes. In New South Wales, a dingo is considered legitimate wildlife and protected. How can you put 1080 poison in a place where you know you're going to be killing dingoes? And the way we do that is by calling them wild dogs. And the way we call them wild dogs is by saying, well, some of them have a great, 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 great aunt who had sex with a German shepherd. And so he's that dingo is now no longer legitimate wildlife. There's some hybrid mongrel non-native species. It's the way we frame how we talk about animals and even species. There are similarities between how we talk about dingoes and their purity and how we have historically spoken about people and races and purity. In this particular example um, is a place called Burraduk 
It's uh, just north of Newcastle, and it is in one of the most beautiful places I've seen anywhere in the world. Her farm is absolutely gorgeous. It is close to the ocean from which you can see uh, whales, and there are dingoes there, and and there are massive lakes, and it's just an extraordinarily beautiful place. It is also a very heavily poison-baited region, Um, and she's one of the few, not the only, but one of the few farmers in that region that is predator-friendly, and she is starting to have some influence on her neighbors. So that means that I guess she's seeing less predation? Well, from my understanding of what she's described, she virtually has no problems with dingoes at all. But there was this one period when she did have problems, and that just went to show how much she needed guardian dogs. And that was when one of her important guardian dog was on maternity leave. She had just had pups, and so she was not with the flock and she she was on vacation <laughs> at home. Um, and during that period, she was telling me about calf losses. Of course, how do you deal then with a situation like that? If you have a dog on maternity leave, do you then maybe have to have more dogs or do you... Um, have a temp. Yes, or <laughs> exactly, yeah, a, a babysitter for the time being. But it's it's a very different kind of environment. So the, the I mean, the cattle, that she has also uh, buffalo, they make their own wonderful cheeses, and they're not killing wildlife, not dingoes, not kangaroos, which are another persecuted wild animal on farms, um, not anything. And, and, and I mean it in no offense. Dingoes are puppy dogs. Why are they puppy dogs? They're a 20-kilogram canid. They are not aggressive. They do have this capacity to look you in the eye and really see you, and it's it's easy. They move like like the most amazing martial art martial artists, athletes. So I would consider them a non dangerous animal. Even there, there's probably more of a chance of being harmed by a cow. Ariane Wallach, Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow from the Centre for Compassion and Conservation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Would you be able to study without print books? That would mean you can't highlight anything, you can't draw on anything, you can't do any diagrams. All on the computer, all with the click of a mouse. All just type, 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 type. I don't think I'd be able to. I think I'm quite a, a tactile learner. I think it would be really difficult to transition to 100% digital. But you're still being tactile, essentially. You're still typing <laughs> onto your computer. It's just, it's just a different medium. Why, why do you think you're a tactile learner? I just, I, there's just something about having that physical, that book in front of you, being able to read it and highlight it and annotate it, that you just, it's just not the same on a computer. But you read an ebook, like you read novels from an ebook. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a bit of both. I, I'm currently reading a novel, actually, but the last book I read was on my Kindle. Like, it just depends on where I'm. Like, my friend lent me a book. You can't really lend a book on a Kindle, you know. Mm. So we're in this weird, quasi-digital, quasi-print space. But what's happening in the library, where it used to be nothing but books, but there are more ebooks now? There's more computers. How has that space changed? 
The, the library world technically don't call me a librarian, they call me a shambrarian. I'm not one of those voracious readers. Not, I don't read four million books a year, and I don't read for the sake of reading. I read if there's something really interesting. This is Mel Booth, university librarian at the University of Technology, Sydney. And although Mel doesn't read as much as you'd imagine a librarian to, doesn't mean he doesn't love a good book. My previous career was, before I got into museums, was I did intelligence work. I was a, an economic intelligence analyst. And I read a lot of spy novels. <laughs> but now, I, so I read a lot, I've read everything John le Carre ever wrote, I think, and um, all those Ludlum things. I just find them entertaining. I mean, Ludlum's probably not great literature, but it's pretty good. What is it about, because I guess having an intelligence background, it's you knowing all like the idiosyncratic details. What is it, what is it about crime? I don't know, I just, I mean, crime's always interesting. I always watch cop shows on the TV. All my friends would laugh and say that I watched every cop show. But uh, I don't know, they're kind of interesting. I, it, it probably has some deep-suited psychological having to know, having to find things out, that sort of curious, curious nature, I suppose. Not that imaginative, though, is it, really? <laughs> I think they are. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. But the, I'm really interested, I think, in, in the change towards... You know, we, we talked about streaming before, streaming video and and radio and podcasts uh, away from sort of normal radio and normal TV broadcasting. Electronic books or e-books have changed the reading game, like Netflix has to TV or Spotify to music. Readers can pretty much read anything when they want and where they want. Rather than head off to the library to rent out that latest Fifty Shades edition, you can just download it onto your Kindle. They're also a viable and sustainable alternative. Less print books means less paper, less trees cut down to make them. But Mel says for libraries, the switch to ebooks isn't as simple as a quick download. The real big problem is the licenses. So um, for us, it's very, very expensive, although it's more convenient to give people access to an ebook. Uh, the publishers still really haven't found uh, an adequate business model that suits everybody in terms of the licence, the number we're allowed to lend out at, at a time. And they're very, very, very expensive to buy for libraries. They really screw libraries down for that sort of stuff because we can, if there was no licence, we could buy one and a million people could read it all at the same time. Whereas with a textbook, a printed textbook, you know, most we ever buy would be 15 to 20. I was one of the people who said print books are not going to die, but the e-book format will evolve. So I think one of the things that we might see with books, book chapters and other printed material available in electronic format, we might see unbundling starting to happen. So people don't buy a whole book that they, that they don't want to read. They'll only buy, buy the part that they do want to read. Or they may rent it for a certain amount of time as well. But I'd, on selling of an, an electronic file like that, you know, an EPUB file, is just so problematic. I can't think that there, there's going to be anything really, anyone that's really willing to go and buy old textbooks in electronic format and resell them or, or move them on. It's a bit more mature, mature digital market, I think, for streaming services, for movies and music, you know, where you don't have to buy the whole, whole album. Isn't it funny that print hasn't figured it out yet it's an older medium? Yeah, it is, it's really interesting. But, but I guess you could argue that digital media needed to sort that out earlier because print was sort of a stable, ongoing format, whereas digital media were by far being threatened more um, in the early days of things like Napster, uh, with music in particular, and, and now torrenting for media. There's more threats in that way than there seems to be for books. Books and e-books are only one of the challenges for libraries today. 
more digital information, meaning more writers, more online journals, academic pieces, articles, more chatter in the online space, Mal says, is pushing libraries into an information overload. One of the obligations for libraries is still to preserve public knowledge. But I, I'm not sure that libraries have never tried to collect absolutely everything apart from published books. Things are now recorded in so many different formats. I'm not, I don't think we should be trying to record absolutely everything. Why don't you think that you as a library should be collecting everything? Uh, well, in, in a way, I think a lot of things nowadays are ephemeral. Like, I think Twitter is fairly ephemeral, and people are starting to set up, like, let's collect everything with a hashtag, you know, that Trump hashtag about Trump book reviews, which was pretty hysterical. They're funny. What was that? Well, uh, Trump made some references to something Hillary Clinton said, and it sounded like a, a, a primary school book review, you know. <laughs> and so people are now tweeting Trump book reviews, which are pretty pretty funny. So... Uh, there's a whole stack of them today. But should we, should we really try and collect every tweet about a particular hashtag? Even, you know, a serious event like the... I know the State Library collected the Lint Cafe siege, uh, all the tweets about that, but some of them are really the, the Twitter equivalent of um, talkback radio. And we don't collect talkback radio, you know, that everyone ringing into talkback radio or every weird talkback radio host. So why should we be collecting all the tweets? So I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's a library's role to keep absolutely everything in every digital platform. What about all the news reports, all of the academic research um, that's now being spoken and collected about something like climate change? What if we collect all that information yeah. and then we archive it into libraries or, or wherever and then 50 years down the line, wherever we are, yeah. we have access to that information? Is it libraries to note that something is important to keep? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting question because, uh, and I was about to say, we don't try and collect everything on the academic record at this university because we don't research all those areas. For example, we don't have a medicine faculty, so, and nor do we have um, like a, a, a fine arts school. So we don't collect all that sort of stuff. It, it, what, what's interesting about things like climate science is that um, I think we are collecting some things, although we're not an archive, so we're not collecting everything that everyone writes about it. But we do have a, an Institute for Sustainable Futures here, so we have an interest in providing them with um, the research that they need in both journal, digital and print format on climate science because they're very, very interested in that. And the reason we don't, that not every library collects everything now is most of us, including quite a lot of those the 39 or 40 Australian university libraries, have a collective agreement to share their collections. So not everybody needs to build a collection the size of Sydney University or Melbourne University anymore because we share each other's collections with each other. So when people search their own collections at home and they can't find that book, they say, do you want to collect Search Bonus Plus, which is, it searches all of those libraries. I think it's something like 12 million collection items as distinct from less than one here. So it massively expands your, your reach. And then you can get that within one or two days from any of those people at no cost. So no cost to you, the borrower. Does that mean, do we still need print books? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of print books myself. And I think um, if you walk around the library now, here just before exams, apart from Fridays, they're not big for students, <laughs> but Mondays to Thursdays, Sunday nights certainly are. Students will, will certainly bring a mobile device, but in some ways the mobile device might well be to, to do other things while they're, while they're studying or reading. So they come to the library because they enjoy reading, and library is a place where you take the, take the pumpkin off, put the head on for a while. It's in an atmosphere where you can get a lot done in a small time in a library because it's, it's got that sort of environment. Is that because of print books? I think 
they're still realised. I'll remember more from reading it in print format. I know, I do know, however, there are others who say I've done my whole PhD, for example, with online material. I didn't print anything out, and that's someone who's really well organised and quite disciplined if they can do that. Because I've, I've been up to our high degree research space and seen the scholars working there, and they're all working with one. Yeah, they will be working on a, a screen writing probably but they'll be working with lots of printed material around them whether that's a book or a journal or a printout of the same in in some way that they've scrawled all over i think there's still some a deeper layer of neurological sort of uptake than there with print material than there is with the screen for those people there's still something tangible with the touching uh, and the object um, the dusty smell well yeah we don't we try not to have too many dusty smells Booth, university librarian from the University of Technology, Sydney. Interestingly, I love how, Jake, you are reading... I am reading it from... ...that name from a piece of paper. Wrote it down, not, ne- not necessarily sustainable, should have typed it. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. So, you know that Australia's got a lot of mines, and you probably also know that one day they've got to shut, you know, these mines... Don't stay open forever. But so, what what do you do when you've had all this stuff, all these contaminants in a mine, but you still want to use the land? One of the biggest things that has been done in the past, and not just in terms of mines, but in surface areas that um, might have contaminants in the ground embedded in the soil, is excavation, which is obviously you rip the stuff out with a big bulldozer and you transport it elsewhere. But what if we already have a more viable, sustainable and affordable solution to cure the ground of contaminants? Well, it's something called phytoremediation, and here's Megan Phillips from the University of Technology Sydney Science Faculty to explain a bit more. So phytoremediation is using natural plant processes to remove contaminants from surface soil landscapes. From what we found, there are about 500 to 600 species so far that are capable of basically sucking up contaminants into their roots. As in, they, the plants can suck up those minerals? They can, yeah. Really? That's right. It's amazing. How? Well, I mean, think about how your normal plant works, okay? So as plants drink from the soil, they, they pull water through their nice hairy root zone, um, they pull in all sorts of minerals and um, nutrients, macronutrients as well, and they can break it down. They can make them into safer compounds. They can sometimes store them in their tissues where you can harvest them, Um, and sometimes they'll just draw up the contaminants, break them down, and send it out into the atmosphere in really low quantities, so it's not like these plants are sort of releasing death gases or anything like that. How do the plants feel about this? (laughs) Because like, I can't imagine for them sucking up all this lead, they're like, mmm, yes, that tastes good. Like, does it kill them? Um, I, all plants have thresholds, so there's no superhero plant that can just suck up limitless amounts of anything. Um, some plants can, on the other hand, suck up really large amounts of contaminants before they start to show any sort of illness. Sometimes you might have to pre-treat the soil with something, like a chelating agent, which makes the um, contaminant more bioavailable. Bioavailable being, meaning like more receptive or... Yeah, so basically you can um, change the composition of the contaminant so that it's more readily sucked up by the plant. So you mentioned that lead could actually work in cases of remediation as well. What are contaminants that can be sucked up through remediation? Lots. Okay, so you can remediate lead. We know other heavy metals too like copper and zinc and nickel. Um, radionuclides like uranium and thorium can as well and also complex compounds like PCB. Okay. What's that? 
We used it in light fittings, so it's a type of plastic, if you like. But the problem is, is that it takes a very long time for it to break down in the environment, and as it breaks down, it can actually become quite dangerous with its um, subcompounds. So being able to um, basically suck up trace amounts of PCB and break it down safely in a plant is a really good thing. And what do you do with these plants afterwards? I mean, and that's another research area that we're thinking about in the future is if this is going to be something that's used on a large scale, what do we do then with the plants once they've finished their purpose? Is this something where they can stay on site? Um, What are the contaminants going to do afterwards? Um, Is it better to basically harvest them and have them in landfill but are you creating another problem with that so that's sort of the next step in terms of phytoremediation is it's like can you find plants that can do this task do they work excellent okay next step is are they causing harm to the environment so for example a question that I get is if something's um, sucking up and contaminant and holding it in the tissues what about herbivores and what Mm. about if you've got reproductive structures like berries are you going to be um, checking to make sure that contaminants don't travel across ecosystems that way, which I think is incredibly valid. So that's another thing we've got to explore too to make sure that this is a biotechnology that we can use in the future without causing further harm. What does it actually look like on the ground? Is it, serious? Is it just literally planting certain types of plants that can um, absorb things up and then you can harvest them and that land is cleaner? So sometimes they look just like a crop. Do you know what I mean? Like in America where they've got the Brownfields Initiative, where they're planting these big fields worth of phytoremediating trees, it can just look like a crop or a forest. So it's just all of the one species. But I kind of I, I think of the idea in the future where you might have like an assemblage of species. So if it, particularly if it's in an area where lots of people look at it and interact it and walk past it, it would be kind of good if we could start bringing in aesthetics as well as the ecological utility of the plants Mm. what are people what are we doing now instead of remediation i think one of the most common practices we have is excavation and then taking it to somewhere else and basically piling it within a site capping it and then putting pipes and grass on the top and you actually do see that you see that a lot around sydney it's sort of like those random green grassy hills and then every Mm. now and then you'll see a vent pipe that usually means that there's something underneath there that's not very sustainable by the sounds of it I don't think so, no. I mean, it's it's sort of one of the only solutions that you might be able to come up with if it's a particularly dangerous contaminant. Like, I guess it's on the different scale of contaminants, different practices that you're able to do, or, yeah. or which ones work yeah, that's better. Right. That's definitely a scale problem, because if you've got a large amount of land that's contaminated by lead, and you're able to scrape off that surface soil, it might actually be more cost-efficient and easier to put it in a big pile and cover it. But then I suppose you're thinking in the future, then you can't use that land anymore. You can't Mm. excavate down into it. How long until you think a practice like this would be utilised and um, we'd move away from less sustainable options like excavation? I think they're going to start paying attention when it becomes a really um, viable financial option for land managers. So one of the most exciting papers that's come out of this field over the last few years was these researchers that compared the cost of remediating a surface landscape with plants versus excavation off-site um, processing and then putting new soil on it. And it actually turned out that the phytoremediation in this instance was 10 times cheaper. How come it was cheaper in this instance? Was it because it didn't require, I guess, all the the big bulldozer to come yeah. in and excavate it was That's it was just true. the cost of plants That's right so think about it okay you're planting appropriate plants for the contamination okay so there's a little bit of background research you've got to do to find the right plant once you've planted them it's the trees doing all the effort rather than the people okay so it's very little upkeep. effort and upkeep that's right 
to basically maintain a phytoremediation product um, project, particularly if you've got the right species for the right space. Okay, so you might only need a little bit of water, a little bit of extra nutrients, and they're basically doing all the heavy lifting of removing the contaminants compared to actual people in machinery and shovels that are doing all of the actual lugging. Megan Phillips, lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week.